0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I wanted to talk tonight about contentment. And I'm just reflecting last night. Andrea gave a really good talk on uh, not tarrying or hurrying, and that we're, we're here uh, to do some really profound, important work. And it's important to not just lay back you know, and tarry or you sink. Or not to struggle or hurry, but to, uh, to have a, a really inspiring vision helps to, to really put what you're doing here in perspective. And so, as is often the case, there's many different um, facets of practice and of the truth. And what I wanted to talk particularly about tonight is this idea of contentment um, in the context of not tarrying or hurrying. <clears throat> Early on, Carol gave a talk on uh, where she she shared the teaching on Yata Buddha, on just accepting things as they are, like it's it's like this is really a key to the practice. And this points to this uh, attitude of contentment. The Buddha, he talks of um, renunciation as being one of, the, one of the principal ways of finding peace in his own mind. He saw when he had thoughts of renunciation letting go of wanting, that that led him to um, to real happiness and peace. So one part of contentment has to do with this quality of renunciation or letting go. Letting go that is having a simplicity with opening up, accepting what's here. Giving up what complicates, confuses, giving up what contracts the mind, and putting down the burden of trying to hold on or carry around this extra baggage that we seem to not be able to let go of. Isn't that interesting? You know, it's just, oh, gee, do I need to carry? three extra suitcases as I'm going through my life? Well, um, no. You'd think, oh, okay, I got the idea. But they just seem to magically come into our hands, and there we are lugging them around. And it's such a great relief. It's such a, a source of happiness to discern what we want from what we need. That's really the key. This is not talking about deprivation or sacrifice, but just seeing what do I really need as opposed to what do I want, which is endless. So this quality of renunciation, of simplicity, of contentment is really Embracing what is already here. Remember that old uh, Sinead O'Connor song. Uh, I I do not. Was it? I do not want what I haven't got. That's a great title for a song. Imagine going through your life and not wanting what you haven't got, and wanting what you have got. Not with attachment, but just enjoying it. Oh, I have this. I have this. I have this. And to not want what you don't have, wow, not so easy. Mm. But the Buddha, I'll just share a few references that the Buddha talks about this in, uh, in the Blessing Sutta. I think I mentioned this. To be reverent and humble, content and grateful. This is a blessing supreme. Or you chant the the metta chant each night, what does it say? Humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Contented and easily satisfied. Mm. So it's. It's a paradox cuz in this world of craving it's so hard to see. That was what motivated the Buddha to teach. He after he was enlightened as probably you know and he looked around and he said, "Oh, I don't know if I want to do this. It's going to be too much of a bother. People, you know, people won't get it and it'll be a vexation to me and just a whole lot of pain and annoyance." And then he saw that everybody wants to be happy and they're doing exactly the things that lead to more suffering that is not seeing the relief of not wanting and thinking that satisfying their desires are going to make them happy so that's what he was motivated by and it's it's such a big secret in our culture where the game is more is better, sooner is best. The epitome uh, of this. Uh, somebody asked John D. Rockefeller when he was the the richest man in the world, how much money will be enough, and his response was just a little more. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's. That's a mini hell realm right there. (laughs) Just a little more. Ooh, can you imagine living your life like that? Just a little more. It'll never be enough. Mm. In the, uh, when was it? Around the 60s or 70s, I forget exactly when. no, it was uh, during uh, the Vietnam um, era, Vietnam War era, um, when um, the U.S. wanted to uh, to make sure that Thailand didn't go communist, and, and so and Thailand was a a place that we a lot of the. Uh, The troops would go for R&R, and it was a a really important ally for us, and so they were very much influenced by our culture. So um, there was pressure put on the Thai government um, to um, make it more of a consumer society like us. And so um, there was very strong pressure. For the monastics, for the the, the monks and uh, the the great teachers, to um, they could continue teaching Buddhism, but they were strongly encouraged to eliminate contentment from the teachings. This is true, and most everybody went along with it, um, except Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was uh, very revered. And also very courageous and very socially engaged. And he said, This is not Buddhism. And he got really heavy, heavy uh, criticism for this. And he refu- his refusal was basically the thing that stopped that campaign. But all of the, 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 the Thai Buddhist uh, elders were ready to dispense with contentment because they, they wanted to be political allies and, ha- and, and aspire to our, our culture. The government was putting that kind of a pressure on. So Buddhadasa said, no, we're not going to do this. And then his own force of personal power started swaying in the opposite direction. But this is how our culture is run. This is from um, the economist Victor LeBeau. Did I read this before? No. I was at another place recently. The, the, uh, this economist Victor LeBeau, um, who was writing just after World War II ended, um, uh, and he was he was uh, naming, describing how our society is most effectively run economically. I know it's uh, it's. I, I've heard different versions where it's not like he was advocating for this, um, but he was just saying, "Oh, this is how it works." Our consumer society, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. That's how it runs. And you are not human beings. You are consumers. You are consumer units. <clears throat> you didn't know that, did you? But that's how you are to a whole lot of people. Mm. The great uh, Brahmin king uh, asked the Buddha, what is it that chains us? And the Buddha says, attachment. Attachment to preferences. So can we live in the world, and both in our retreat and out in the world, with inner contentment? And I first just want to do a little exercise to, to show you how um, just the, the force of of this uh, dilemma in the mind, just sit for a moment with, uh, with your eyes closed, and just uh, just relax, feel your breath. maybe listen to the sounds or my voice or silence, and just be open to this moment as it is, exactly as it is. Rest in this moment. Now, think of something you really want. (laughs) Come on, go for it. (laughs) Get in touch with how much you want, whatever it is the next sitting to be like, or this weekend to be like, or the next six weeks to be like, whether or not you're staying or you're leaving. Notice how it feels to want. Notice how it feels in your body and in your mind. Okay, now go back to just listening or feeling your breath. Just reconnect with this moment, just as it is. Just relax. Be here now. And notice something in this moment right now to appreciate. being here in the Dharma hall, being alive, breathing, whatever it is, just notice if there's something right now to appreciate. Notice how that feels, how it feels inside, in the mind, in the heart, in the body. enjoy what you've got. Okay, you can open your eyes. You notice a difference? In just one moment, oh, wouldn't it be nice if, and all of a sudden, peace is disturbed. All of a sudden, This moment isn't enough. And this is what we're practicing here, just, and it takes a lot of practice, six weeks of practice, maybe you're just starting to scratch the surface, you know, six weeks, three months of practice to overcome that deep conditioning of how seductive wanting is. And you start to see over and over again. Oh, when I don't want, there's ease and freedom. When I do want, it's a drag. How many times have you seen that in the last six weeks? Do you think you got it? <laughs> and But every time you see it, every time you really see it not just oh, that's a, that's the, that's the teachings. Yes, I think I got the teachings, but you see it for yourself. You feel it. You experience it for yourself, where it's not something that you're just kind of you know putting up with or you know, resigning yourself to, but seeing oh, this is where relief, release, wholeness, happiness is to be found. Oh. And more and more, you start to see, wow, this moment is always available. There's always a now, no matter how many times you've missed it before, oh, there's this moment. I can practice it right now. This moment being enough, how cool. You get, you're going to get a whole lot more moments in the next six weeks. You know? and in the, that's, who knows, if you're around, I mean not just around here, but wherever you are, you do have a finite number of moments in your life, but why not spend them with ease and feeling a sense of wholeness and completeness instead of hankering after something and getting caught like most, most of us do. Now, does this mean we're never supposed to want? No, 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 no. There's, you know, we talked about the difference between tanha and chanda, where the pain of craving is different from the potentially wholesome state—an urge to do, an urge to to um, express in a skillful way, or appreciate this moment as it is. Um, wanting, Chanda, wanting to develop a, a heart that opens, or a mind that sees clearly, or that's free. That kind of wanting is very healthy. And even the wanting—let's be realistic—as you go through life, you know, we want things that, you know, it's it's part of being human to want things. So it's not that oh, I'm bad for wanting, but to Really, appreciate and enjoy what 's here instead of getting caught in the wanting because when you 're caught in the wanting you can 't even appreciate what 's here and, and just comes to mind a, a story that i I sometimes tell on retreats i i don 't think i 've told it here when my son Adam was um, about two and a half did I tell a story about him? And uh, we were down at Yucca Valley every uh, every spring. We used to go down to Yucca Valley, and uh, he was in the staff room, and I was with him. And uh, he, uh, it was snack time, and he had a uh, there was a, a a big bowl of strawberries, which was his, like his favorite food. Big, luscious, organic strawberries, right? And he was, you know, like a kid in a candy store, as they say, right? And he was just kind of like putting them in his mouth, and juice coming all over him, you know. And I wanted to teach him to eat mindfully, right? (laughs) Like everybody else, I was a little naive at the time. And I, and I, I I said, Adam, Adam, just eat what's what's in your mouth. Just really taste (laughs) it. It tastes so good, right? <laughs> and, and at some point I said, oh, I've, got to, I've got to really show him. So I moved the bowl out of his reach, and I said, Adam, just eat, eat what you got. And there's this one moment, it's indelible in my mind, where he has this huge strawberry in his mouth, right? and he's lunging and he's saying, strawberry! <laughs> You know, that that's our predicament. We can't even enjoy what's here when we're caught in wanting the next thing. You know what I mean? You don't have to be two and a half. You know. So it's really it's not to to be you know such uh, such an ascetic that you don't appreciate or enjoy what's here. But the the trick is. To just know when enough is enough. And there's a, I love this quote from uh, the Buddhist uh, uh, economist and uh, scholar and monk, P.A. Paiuto, a Thai um, scholar and monk, monastic, mm, who he talks about the principle of moderation that is, knowing the amount that's just right. He says, it is an awareness of that optimum point where enhancement of true well-being coincides with the experience of satisfaction. Consumption balanced to an amount appropriate with well-being rather than to the satisfaction of desires. In contrast to maximum consumption leading to more satisfaction, there's moderate or wise consumption leading to well-being. You know that sweet spot that's, this is just enough. That means to appreciate what's here. You've got to be here and not in the future to experience contentment. Oh, this is good. This is re- I mean, if you're not there, then you're missing out on The blessing that you're given in that moment. But we get stirred up into thinking maybe the next moment will be better. It's, It's always future oriented. That's why there's such refuge in the present, you know, that just the hidden promise of the future, of what's right around the corner. And we do this with. Stuff, we do this with cramming the next thing in, we do this with busyness in our lives, thinking more is better. Mm, I came across, well, I I read my favorite writer in yesterday's column, uh, this guy Mark Morford who used to write in the Chronicle, but he's just so out there that he's no longer in the print edition, but he's in the, uh, the uh, online edition. Here's from his column yesterday. The title is Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. Um, I'll just read a little bit. He's talking just about what we're, I love this guy. Yeah. <clears throat> Every Wednesday it's, oh good, it's Wednesday, it's Morford. Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking and it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exist to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this, this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? (laughs) I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, (laughs) retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? (laughs) Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? It's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. will go later on the article. In any 48-period hour period in 2010, st- says a stunning bit I just read in the Atlantic, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the past 30,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> and by the year 2020, the same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. It is no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri. That's the new uh, iPhone app that's causing a sensation, and waving to the CCTV cameras, it is no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, (laughs) hipstomatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree, You cannot just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn (laughs) as OnStar politely blows up your car. (laughs) How easily we forget. Time expands. Time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do ten things in an hour or one thing in ten. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day, and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as, you, as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely micro-task until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. So, we crave space, we crave balance, and yet we get seduced, left and right, don't we? This is uh, from Peace Pilgrim. Did I I mention Peace Pilgrim here? I keep on forgetting what I did say or (laughs) not. I don't want to repeat it. Peace Pilgrim, who is this incredibly wise being, renunciate, who walked uh, walked all over the United States for about oh, uh, 20, or 20 years or so, from the 50s to I think 1980 or so, just with a toothbrush and sharing the message of peace. Really wise being. Um, and she writes If your life is in harmony with your part in the life pattern, and if you are obedient to the laws which govern this universe, then your life is full and good, but not overcrowded. If it is overcrowded, you are doing more than is right for you to do, more than is your job to do in the total scheme of things. But you can see how on the smallest little scale, how we lean forward to the next thing that we've got to do, or the next thing we think we'll, we need to do. And as you practice here, do you ever notice as you're walking, doing walking meditation, that you're walking to get to the end of your lane? You know? What are you going to do when you get there? Just turn around and go back, right? Or you're sitting and you're somehow looking for a better moment when this moment, it's possible to open up to the completeness of it, not realizing that looking for a better moment is the very thing, there's the strawberry again, that takes you out of feeling whole. Or you go from sitting are you there between getting up from the sitting to go to the walking or is it oh I'm getting up from sitting now I'll go do the walking you know or when the lunch bell rings you ever notice you know are you are you mindful from the moment that you hear the bell how do you get to the dining room you're just kind of pulled automatically you know? oh there's lunch okay so here's a little exercise I, I did with the uh, a few of you in uh, in interviews to just really feel the possibilities just imagine something in front of you that you're looking forward to okay it might be if you're here for 6 weeks you know in a couple of days looking forward to whatever is there at home. Or if you're here for three months, it might be looking forward to everybody getting out of here so you can just get on with your retreat or whatever. But think of something you're really looking forward to. Actually, make it really good in your mind, all right? And now, imagine it's right out in front of you, just out of your reach. And so, I want you to just play along with me in this. Keep your butt on the cushion or the chair or wherever you're on the bench. And I'd like you to imagine that if you lean forward and you can touch it, you'll have instant gratification. Everything that you really want, it's all there out in front of you in the near future. Okay. So I'd like you to go ahead and lean forward. Come on, really go for it. Come on, if you really want it, and it's just out of your reach. Don't, don't go anywhere yet. Now, just realize it's not going to happen, and I'd like you to slowly come back to center and let your body feel what it's like to come back Sometimes we might know it conceptually, but our bodies feel the truth. This is really unpleasant, isn't it? (laughs) How much of our lives do we spend like this? This is really centered, where peace is found, an ease, a connection, a contentment, this is where it's at. But you have to come here and practice for six weeks or three months to kind of get the idea. You know, and maybe little by little, you're getting the idea. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about different kinds of discontent and, um, and what is contentment. And then in the context of the greater picture, Of not just resting in contentment. There's discontent that's born out of aversion, where we don't like what's here right now and we want it to change. The physical experience is unpleasant, or the mental experience is unpleasant, and there's hindrances, and somehow we want it to go away, this moment is not what I ordered, and I'd like a different one, thank you. And what happens, the more you want a different one, you are compounding the problem, aren't you? Uh, there's a, f- uh, a friend of mine uh, who runs a, a group for people with chronic pain. And she said when she started the group, and she has chronic pain herself, and she decided to run a group with a friend, and these are people with serious chronic pain, but she, um, she wanted to share the practice with them, and they were, uh, they were really open to it and into it. She's been uh, running this group now for, oh, I think about uh, three or four years, and she says, it's extraordinary the shift that has happened with these people when they realize that they don't have to add on to their suffering by wishing it was different. And she says it's one of her her favorite times of the week to spend with these people who are going through very challenging, difficult times but getting more and more awake in the freedom that can come from seeing, okay, this is how it is. How can I deal with this? How can I open up to it without that extra frustration, sorrow, self-pity, contraction that wants this to be different? It's possible. When you see, this is the way it is, and there's not much I can do about it in the moment, you've got basically two choices. Wish it were different and get really bummed out, or saying, okay, this is how it is. How can I open up to it with as much grace and wisdom as I can? How can I learn from this too? Not so easy, but it's possible. And I think probably most everybody here has had moments where you stopped fighting the unpleasantness of the experience and saw, oh, I can be with this too. Even if it's just for a little moment, that can start to change everything. So that's one discontent born out of aversion. Then there's Discontent or the the not content, uh, not opening up to contentment with the fact that things change. And we're afraid of change. And we like the familiar, we like just home. Even if it's an unpleasant home, if it's something that we have grown accustomed to and we're familiar with, then the organism doesn't like to change. And I think it came up in one of the, the talks or questions, you know, how we can get attached to our suffering Not consciously, not, oh, I love my suffering, but like, who am I without my suffering? And uh, this is a a really important pattern of thought to realize how, of course you don't want to suffer, but unconsciously you don't know what it would be like if you let go of it. A friend of mine, this really wonderful teacher, um, she's an art uh, teacher, uh, a woman named Michelle Kasu, in the Bay Area, and she teaches uh, this process called the painting experience. It's kind of Vipassana on paper, and she says, you know, don't worry about what it's going to look like. You just keep on painting, and she tells you when you stop. She says, if you, you just keep on getting it out. If you're stuck, choose another color and keep letting it come out of you. Or if you're stuck, go to a different Part of the paper where it's where it's blank, and see what comes out. And she keeps on going, you know, letting it come, letting it come, and not letting your mind get in the way. Anyway, she uh, she was showing a series of her own paintings, where and the uh, the theme was on uh, death. That she was it was just going around in her mind, and she painted this series of like oh. I don't know, fifteen or twenty paintings uh that were coming out of her. And there was this one painting I'll never forget about this, it kind of like it's the the, the representation of this predicament, where um she had already in her mind she had died and she was in the grave underground in a coffin and there was uh, in her in her mind's eye and she painted there was this shaft of light going up to um through the the ground and the sky up to a buddha field up on in in the heavens with these buddha figures all around you know and she was down there in the coffin there it was dank and damp and there were maggots and It was kind of gross in there as her body was going through its discorporation. And what she said was, it was so interesting that she was down there, and although she knew there was a Buddha field up there, it was just kind of... It was, it was where she was, and it was going to be a big effort to get from down there up to the, the heavens. So she could see herself just, oh, let me just stay here for a while. It's just kind of, yeah, it's kind of gross, but it's home, right? <laughs> and in a way, we, we, we do this in our own subtle way, you know. Oh yeah, you know, here I am lost in this habit again, but it's familiar, you know. Or I know this isn't going to be good for me, but you know, it's what I do. So, to let go of our attachment to the familiar and part of contentment means to really allow for the natural flow of change to occur. That also means letting go of your ideas of who you think you are, or all the beliefs that you might have, or the beliefs about practice, and letting go in your mind and just seeing what's actually here. Because we overlay with our concepts on top of reality, and then we fight them one way or another. Okay, so what is contentment? I'll speak a little bit about that. It's, as we have been saying, seeing this moment as complete. Every moment of mindfulness, if you can see it as a moment of ok with life. In the moment of mindfulness, there's not a grasping at at the pleasant, or pushing away the unpleasant, or taking ownership of the experience. It's just how it is. Every single moment of mindfulness is a moment where it's complete. The the third Zen patriarch where he says, uh, the way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. That's a moment of mindfulness. Here's another little exercise that I often like to do. Just put your arm out in front of you right now and move it slowly back and forth, very slowly. Close your eyes as you do it and put all your attention on feeling the movement, the vibration, the muscles, the bones. Just feel the movement. Right now, do you need to add anything to make it a better moment or take anything away? It's just. Complete as it is. Okay, you can open your eyes. That is a moment of contentment. We are not looking for something else. Just, oh, it's like this right now. And it means allowing for it all to be here. We can have, as soon as we have some kind of an idea of what good practice will look like, or what my life will look like when it's really working, then we're setting ourselves up that this isn't enough. I went to, um, I went to uh, see this great master who had a, a big influence on me, uh, this great Advaita teacher, um, H.W.L. Uh, Punja, Punjaji, or Papaji, he's called, lived in, in uh, Lucknow, India. And um, I asked him. Uh, he was a very happy guy, and a really I got it, quite a a hit of joy from him. He was he was a big one in helping me turn towards joy, and I was. Um, I had so many questions, and he, he kept on saying, give me your questions, give me all your questions. you have any more questions? And I'd say, well, I have this. Give me your questions. You know. And at the very end, he said, any more questions? I said, I have one more question. <laughs> this is at about three weeks I was there. And he said, give me your question. And I said, Punjaji, uh you talk about emptiness. And you, ha- you are just radiant and, and, and beaming. Um, and Buddhists talk about emptiness a, a lot, a lot. But it seems so solemn and serious when when Buddhist teachers and teachings they talk about profound emptiness. You know. <laughs> you know. But you're having so much fun. You know, why is your emptiness so much more fun than, <laughs> than <laughs> ours? And he said something like, uh, it can, you can easily mistake the stillness that comes in meditation for, um, for the, the true experience of emptiness And if you think that emptiness has to be still and silent and serene and solemn, then all the activity and all the other appearances will not be as valid or valuable. He said, uh, My emptiness, my emptiness rejects nothing my emptiness, there's sorrow, and joy, and love, and anger, and everything. My emptiness rejects nothing from my emptiness. And he, ha, he starts laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very important moment for me. <laughs> Don't reject anything in thinking, that that is going to bring you happiness. Your practice, as you've probably seen, little by little, is opening up to it all. To see, this is a moment of life. You take refuge in the Dharma. What does refuge in the Dharma mean? It means that life is giving you what you need to wake up to in this moment. How can you relate to it in a way that keeps your heart open and wakes you up to uh, the deeper understandings of freedom. So contentment isn't struggling, isn't bargaining. It's allowing for it all, embracing it all. It moves from resistance to just a true holding of your experience if it's difficult with compassion, if it's not difficult with appreciation, It's really being open enough, wide enough, you know, big mind, the big mind to hold it all. A number of years ago, there was a a great Tibetan master that that came to um, Spirit Rock and he gave this talk. He said, um, I'm going to, um, tonight I, uh, I want to Let you know, or what part of the talk I listened to the talk. Somebody said you got to check this talk out. He said, "I can. I want to sum up all of Dharma practice in two words." Everybody was really interested. (laughs) Two words, and then he said, "Be spacious," because in that spaciousness you allow for it all, and you're not contracting or tightening or bargaining or wishing things were different contentment is really seeing it's all here and what does that mean it means to let go of how you think things should be and see there's more here than you than you could ever need to wake up it's just perfect what you need it's And when you have a a feeling of gratitude for life, gratitude really supports contentment because it's a sense that, oh, life has given me enough. There's uh, my my son Adam, uh, who's really into practice. He had this uh, really profound uh, experience. Uh, He was telling me, he said, it came to me, the, just the experience that I called, abundant enoughness. <laughs> I love that phrase. That, li- that And we can open up to it, abundant enoughness. Where life is giving us all that we need. And that means letting go of what we think we need. Letting go, this is another. Uh, another passage I, I like from Ajahn Sumedho. <clears throat> He's so quotable. The practice of letting go is very effective for, effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words. Let go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that, and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, (laughs) then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences." (laughs) This is where the real lessons are. It's good to read the books and be inspired right here in this moment. Can you let go of thinking that you need more and open up to what's really here right now? Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I visited Ramdas Dass um, in, in Hawaii where he lives, and he was, he's one of my main teachers and a real inspiration for me, and he was writing about contentment. And uh, I said, oh, cool. All right, well, uh, I don't want to wait until you finish with the writing. Could you you sum it up for me in a couple of words? And he said, yeah, I can. I've come to see that contentment means plumbing the depths of this moment. Plumbing the depths of this moment that it's fully here, it's not becoming, it's not you know, in the wheel of dependent origination, out of the, the craving and, and grasping, then bhava becoming, that leaning forward. It's just seeing what's here right now, true presence. Okay, so I wanna say just a few things about um, the dangers Of taking this, taking the teaching on contentment, but not seeing a bigger context, both in the outer and the inner. Because you can misunderstand in in your um, valuing of contentment And not see, you don't want to tarry, as Andrea was saying. You don't want to just say, loll about and say, okay, I'll just kind of let things happen the way they do. There's a value in that in the moment, but in the bigger picture, life keeps on happening, and practice means staying connected to that flow of life contentment doesn't mean complacency it doesn't mean laziness it doesn't mean staying stuck and saying okay I'm stuck this lifetime you know? on a on an outer level there's the 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 sense that, in your life, you're on a journey. And you can't stop that journey. And so it's important to to see that contentment doesn't mean stopping. It doesn't mean playing it safe and being just where you are. It doesn't mean getting stuck in in indecision or what do I do with my life? Well, I'll just kind of keep on going right the way I am and, and, uh, and just, you know, I'll be content with this." There is a trajectory for your life and a rhythm to your life. And part of the practice is really trusting and a deep listening of how your life is unfolding. Content with, with things as you are experiencing them, but also being inspired by a vision. What are you going to do with your life? And I know some people who are uh, leaving the retreat and others who are here for three months and will be leaving then have choices to make in their life, big choices, and it's not always easy to figure out what to do. you don't really need to figure it out. Just really keep on listening and trusting in life. I, I share the story sometimes. I was at a, a crossroads in my life uh, many years ago. This is in 1977. I'd been teaching school for uh, many a number of years in, in New York City. and. Um, but it felt like it was like the end of, of that cycle. I'd been teaching for about 10 years there. But I was making good money, $17,000. Um, and I didn't want to let go of, of that security. But it felt like it was about time. And then there was um, the center here was just, just open. I had sat the three-month course in 76. I thought, well, maybe I'll go up and, and work at IMS. Uh, but then there was moving out to California, which was calling to me, and then there was going to Asia, have my Asian experience. Right. So they all seemed like good options, and I didn't want to blow it, but I was afraid to make a mistake. So I kind of went round and round in my mind. You know, what am I going to do? What should I do? What should I do? And. Uh, couldn't figure it out. Finally, I went to this very wise man who I'd gone to a number of times before. Every summer when I was out in Colorado, I'd go um, and uh, I'd go there for Naropa, And I and he lived in Denver. His name was Reverend Miller. He was a psychic. Five dollars a reading, right? <laughs> he wasn't in it for the money, but he was really wise. And I said, I need to go see Reverend Miller. I'd seen him before. And I went to him, and I told him my, my uh, options. And I said, what should I do? I, I really don't, don't want to blow this. You know? And he said, um, well, I won't tell you what to do. I said, Oh, too so bad. He said, but I will tell you one thing. I said, yeah. He said, it doesn't matter. I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? That's my life you're talking about. And he believed in spirit guides and and devas and things like that. So, you know, I, I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that he was wise. And he said, if you're stuck and frozen and afraid to take the next step, then your guides can't help you. But if, given the information you have right now, you take your next step and your next step, your guides can help and support you. And you take a few steps and then you see, oh yeah, this is feeling right, or you take a few steps and you see, oh no, it's not this one, I should try the the other option, or you take a few steps and it leads to something that you never would have imagined that opens up a whole new part of your journey. So really, it doesn't matter. Your life is going to keep on unfolding. You just don't get stuck in fear and indecision and just keep putting yourself in motion and be willing to listen to the unfolding with okayness, with contentment, with wakefulness as it all unfolds. Best $5 I ever spent. So on the outward side, living your life on a personal level and not being stuck in playing it safe, that's not what contentment is. Also, In the outer world, being content with your lot is just part of the deal. What are you going to do with your practice? You're part of a larger whole. And part of listening to your life's journey is finding out how life wants to express itself through you. What are your gifts? What kind of contribution do you make to the world? Unless you're living a monastic life, which is a really wonderful, inspiring life, you're part of uh, a, a larger society, what, do you, what are you called to do? Because that's where real happiness is, is finding your, your calling and expressing and sharing your gifts, it's, uh, this line by Howard Thurman maybe you're familiar with, don't ask what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive, and then do that. Because what the world needs is people who've come alive. And so contentment also means really listening to what life is calling forth from you. And making it a joyous adventure instead of some kind of heavy-duty pressure, that's where authentic happiness comes. I think I mentioned it. Seligman, uh, the father of authentic happiness, talks about when you can find your gifts and really find a way to express them, that's where true happiness is. So contentment is partly... Being with things as they are, but also listening to the voice of the dharma as it comes through you. And listening to what you're being called to do in your life. And that can be really exciting. The world needs your practice. All this stuff that you've been doing here for the last six weeks or these three months is not just for you alone. We need as much consciousness in this world as we can all contribute. How are you going to express your practice? How can you share your loving kindness that you've developed? How can you share the clarity? and the patience, and the wisdom, and the freedom, and the goodness that's right inside, let it be a joyous adventure. And know that we need it. So that's another aspect of learning to both be here with who you are and keep on growing in the process. And then there's the inner world as well. Our practice, not tarrying, you know, as uh, Andrea said yesterday, or in that quote, I think Carol used it in one of her talks, the Buddha saying, Two things I came to know well, not to be content with good states of mind so far achieved and to be unremitting in one's commitment to liberation. So contentment with the moment, yes. Being inspired by a larger vision of where this is leading to, yes. They both complement each other. And the way to full liberation is to open up to this moment, just as it is. Not with bargaining, not with resistance, not with resignation, but an attitude that appreciates this moment and know that it's leading you to something quite extraordinary. You don't have to figure out what, but just keep on showing up, and it unfolds on its own. So I'll close with one last poem about the mystery of this, allowing it to open on its own. This is a Dana Foltz poem. You mean to say that I'm plugged into the same socket as that electric blue sky, so vibrant that I want to lose myself in its azure height? You mean that the same juice that runs the universe flows through me like a love song or a bolt of lightning? You mean life isn't about being good or perfect or virtuous, but daring to freely follow energy? Are you trying to say in your slow and patient way that the presence of God is everywhere? That even as I bumble through my life, I have no reason to hide? That I'm not a sinner, but a conduit for light? That even when I'm dull and uninspired, the seeds of my awareness are sprouting even now? How utterly audacious, but I know you're right. Holding back just leaves me feeling less alive, while letting go leads... Well, I don't know where it leads, but I know that's where I'm heading. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening.